I from First Corinthians chapter thirteen, verses one to thirteen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails, but where there are prophecies, there will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. I can see. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When, when I was a child, I think like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I put childish ways behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of all is love. the greatest of all is love, which is a very reassuring thought because it doesn't depend upon us. Uh, It's something that is an anchor for our faith and for our life. But there's also a challenge for us because we're not passive recipients of love. We're to be active uh, participants in, in community life, congregational life, in society, in loving one another. And that's a real challenge when we take it seriously. So this morning we're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13 carefully and seeing what exactly love is. But before we do that, let's come to the Lord in prayer and ask his help that he may open his word to us. Father, we give you thanks that we come to you in confidence that you hear our prayers. Forgive us our sins. We thank you that the the, the blood of Christ, the work of Jesus on the cross, is the basis for our relationship with you, for the atonement of our sins of the forgiveness of our wrongs and for bringing us into a relationship with you in your family. And thank you that your love sought us out and reached out and brought us home. Father, help us to reflect upon the greatness of your love this morning, that we would be called uh, children of God, and help us to be stirred to love you more and to love one another more. Father, we pray that you would open your word to us this morning. We pray that you would speak clearly to us directly through your word. 
We pray that you would rebuke us where necessary. And Father, we know that our love is so often lukewarm and so often there are things we should do that we fail to do. We know that we sin against you in our thoughts and our words, particularly to each other. And Father, we know that that we are so often spoiled children, quick to forget your love for us, quick to judge others, and quick to return to our selfish ways. We pray that you would you would speak with us this morning, that we pray that you would encourage us, that you would inspire us, that you would point us back in the right direction and fill our hearts with love. And Father, our reason for confidence in being able to love you and to love one another is because of the work of your spirit in our hearts and we pray that we would feel that this morning. We pray for those who are questioning and seeking. We pray that you would open their eyes this morning and speak to them and bless them. We pray for those who are discouraged and downcast that you would lift them up. And we pray most of all that you would be lifted up and that you would glorify yourself through your word and also through our lives uh, in, as a congregation and as we go out into society. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a passage that's fairly straightforward. I think it's one of these passages that's best approached by just going through text verse by verse and and seeing what it says. Uh, But I'm going to take a few quick detours by way of filling in background information at the beginning to contextualize uh, the the message that Paul is bringing to us here uh, by the Holy Spirit. So Paul is concerned about what exactly in 1 Corinthians 13 if you think about the context of 1 Corinthians, he's writing to this Greek church in a very cosmopolitan, very, uh, I guess we'd say very worldly um, uh, city on the uh, Greek peninsula. It's, it's a very globalized seaport. People are very proud of what they can do. They're very particularly proud of Greek uh, rhetoric, of clever speaking, of making a good impression. And Paul writes a letter that's full of love but also rebuking the church for being too focused on cleverness, cleverness of ideas, cleverness of words, and for judging by impressions. One of the distractions for the church in Corinth was they were very consumed about talking about who was most gifted in terms of spiritual gifts. Uh, They were distracted by the question of tongues and by forming judgments about who was most spiritual and who spoke well, uh, whether uh, in Greek or in other languages. And so Paul rebukes them and says, you've got to get things back where they should be. You've got to get things back in proportion, uh, back in the center of things. He has a discussion about the nature of spiritual gifts and the way that God has given different gifts to different members of the body. And then he moves on to say, look, none of this really matters. What really matters is whether your religion is real. Uh, And he brings us a message here where he basically uh, makes it very plain that we might be very eloquent, we might be very able to explain our faith, we maybe we know uh, the Westminster Confession um, inside out, maybe we know our catechisms, maybe we can quote great passages of scripture, uh, maybe we have seen to be very pious, we give generously and uh, everything about our life speaks of Christian piety. And Paul says, you know, you can be in that place and still be lost in a false religion. Not that you're Ideas that you speak are wrong, but that religion, that faith has not come into your heart and out in your life in the way that it ought to. So uh, it's a very confronting passage. Uh, We're going to quickly move through each verse. 
um, uh, largely verse by verse. And so verse 1, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Bear in mind this context that he's writing to this very sophisticated people, very proud people, who are very much taken up with the question of cleverness of speech. Now, we might say in a Presbyterian church, uh, it's our position essentially that uh, tongues have largely ceased, so you know, doesn't have to, we don't have to think about tongues. Well, Paul's point here is not really tongues per se. What he's saying is people form an impression about the superiority of people's religious, about uh, their faith, about their piety, based on impressions, based on how well they present themselves, their confidence, their articulation of their faith, uh, their speech. And he, he says as, and as strongly as he can, it doesn't matter how well I speak, it doesn't matter how impressive my religion appears to be, if there is no love behind that, it's empty. It's, it's just empty. It has no content. I'm then not a, uh, a, a, a clever, articulate uh, preacher. I'm just a gong, a symbol, just an empty vessel being banged with a stick. Uh, it's very strong language. And what Paul is getting at is that, uh, and we're told this many times throughout Scripture, that if our faith does not result in deeds, if, if our love is not made real in action, uh, then our faith is dead. Um, as James says uh, very plainly in his very direct epistle, um, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. We know that a human body can be perfectly intact, and yet uh, you know, once uh, the spirit has left the body, all of that spirit, all of that physical perfection uh, doesn't do anything to, to uh, deal with the absence of life. Life and the, and the presence of the spirit and the body go together. And so we might have everything complete with our Christianity, and yet if we fail in love, uh, what we have is just dead. I want to uh, take a couple of minutes to look at some side passages here because this places a context to what Paul means when he talks about love. So staying with James, uh, do not merely listen to the word, he says in, in James chapter 1, uh, verse 22. So do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like somebody who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like, which may be a good thing depending on what you see, I suppose. But of course, you know, the, the point is it's so stupid to bother to check you know, is my hair straight, is my tie correct or whatever, and then uh, do nothing about what you see. Uh, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. So that the point about the looking at the face in the mirror is when we confront our true self um, and face the reality of where we fall short and what God requires of us, um, if we then just say that's uncomfortable and turn away, um, that's just foolishness. But if we say, no, I've, I've, got to, uh, I've got to follow God's law, then we'll find blessing. Uh, and just staying with this theme of law because it gives us the foundation for understanding what it means here by love in uh, many places throughout Scripture we're reminded of this, uh, this uh, truth, but I'll take uh, Matthew 22. Teacher, 
which is the greatest commandment in the law? One of the Pharisees asks Jesus, seeking to trick him. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So he was speaking to the Pharisees and he says, and all they care about is the law and the prophets. And he said, everything in the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So, of course, we understand the Pharisees in their legalism often um, were so focused on the law they forgot about love. And uh, Jesus is reminding us that, uh, yes, the law is important, but the, the principle that is at the center of the law is love. Uh, in uh, John 13, he says, A new commandment I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, thinking about the question of true religion and uh, uh, whether uh, people who look at us, or whether they look at our church, have a sense of, of being drawn to what's here or, or walking away, I wonder whether you ever had the experience of asking somebody to come along to church or talk about the gospel and you find that they're a little bit shy or a little bit reluctant and, uh, of course, our reluctance to come to church or to talk about the gospel can be because we're reluctant to face God. Uh, But sadly, it's not just that reason. Uh, That's a spiritual principle at work, but it's also because we may have had a very unpleasant experience with those who are supposed to be children of God and that's left us feeling... um, bitter or disappointed to the point where we can't face organised religion anymore. That's, that's a reality. It's, there's a very uh, heavy obligation on us when Jesus said, by this will everyone know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The converse is, if we don't love one another, we may as well forget about preaching the gospel and inviting them to church and uh, talking about religion because it means nothing. Um, the first and most important thing we have to do is uh, to present the truth of the gospel in the, in the proof of love. Okay, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy, it can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Uh, we come from a tradition where we, I think, are rather proud of our um, intellectual heritage, we think that we're coming from the Reformed uh, Presbyterian tradition, that we uh, are clear in our doctrine, uh, we think through our faith. Um, I don't think that's a bad thing. Uh, uh, I don't know whether um, you might feel less comfortable in another church for this reason. I like uh, a Reformed or a Presbyterian church uh, where, the, where the word is preached well because it, it happens to fit with uh, I guess a particular personality quirk of, of my own. I, I'd, I'd like ideas to be thought through. But the reality is you could go down the road to a, a charismatic church of some kind where the doctrine was not particularly clear, some things were in error, and yet the congregation was full of love and find yourself closer to the centre of true faith and true religion than you could in some Presbyterian or Reformed church where there's an absence of love. The Pharisees really understood uh, the Hebrew Bible inside out. They understood the law, but they didn't understand, by and large, as a group, uh, they didn't understand love. And uh, sometimes we can be Pharisees today. Jesus said, be wary of the yeast of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, of course, were given to doubt and and to backing away from truth. Um, 
I don't think we'd see ourselves in that position that the Pharisees were given to a legalism at the expense of love. And that's a danger for us in our tradition. Uh, James uh, says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep tight rein of their tongues to see themselves religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this. It looks after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Religion that our Father accepts as pure and faultless. Uh, there, there can be an expression of religion which is not pure and faultless. And at the heart of what James is saying in his very practical epistle is what do we do? How do we treat each other? How do we treat those who um, are not in the same uh, part of society that we want to mix with, who are down on their luck? Are we really loving those in need? If we don't, then we're falling short. Um, we're told again and again that uh, love is central to our faith, to our true religion, because it's the reflection of the character of God. God is love. Uh, in, in 1 John, we're told several times over, John says, God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We love because he first loved us. This is the, the, the wellspring of our faith. And we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Okay, verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, then I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. You know, this at first glance actually seems to contradict what I was just saying. I said that without deeds, faith is dead. And now here he's saying, you know, if I do all of these things, I give all of my possessions away, I renounce my wealth, I I, uh, fast and I'm tougher on my body, Well, if I don't have love, I gain nothing. So what's going on here? Uh, A passage that I think sheds light on this kind of mistaken approach to deeds uh, is in 2 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, Paul says, There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good having a form of godliness but denying its power. Have nothing to do with such people. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Now, some of the things said there might refer to somebody living a very overtly uh, hedonistic lifestyle, somebody who's just partying and having fun and and thinking about number one. Um, But this can also apply to people who uh, don't express that that, that selfishness, that self-focus outwardly in terms of a hedonistic lifestyle, but rather express it in terms of piety, somebody who is very big on coming across as religious, somebody who's very, um, well, we're told in, uh, in 1 Corinthians 13 that they're boastful. So the boastfulness is an is a, is a, is a indicator of deeds not done for the wrong reason. It's deeds done for ego. And a person can be very, very religious uh, in their deeds and can do all the things that we say are important and yet if it's done out of ego and selfishness and not out of love uh, then it's a form of godliness without its power um, it's I don't suggest that we're in any immediate danger of falling into that trap but we do err into it on occasion In if you stop and think about yourself I'm sure you've had occasion when 
you've felt filled with a little bit of self-righteousness, a bit of indignation, you've used some religious language to put people in their place, and uh, you've come across as very Christian, perhaps very Presbyterian, very pious, and yet actually it's come out of your ego, not out of, not out of love for the other, and um, that's a, a form of religion that denies its power. Okay, verse 4 says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is proud. Now we're moving, having, having made his argument about the, the primacy of love and the deception of religion without love that effectively is false religion, uh, Paul moves in to talk about what love really is. You know, there's only a few verses here where he unpacks this, only a, a, only a few dozen words, and it's very easy to gloss over this. But each of these words really requires some reflection because when we put them together, uh, what Paul is talking about in terms of love is, is quite radical. It's quite extreme. Love is patient. Okay, that seems fine. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. We know that uh, our love, if it's, it's truly expressed, if it's, it's really the work of God in our hearts, comes because God himself is love. And so if you think of what Paul is saying, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it's not proud, the standards that he has there with those words, patient, kindness, en- uh, lack of envy, uh, lack of boastfulness, humility, what's implied there is is not your sort of benchmark standard for a good bloke or a nice Christian or a decent person, um, the benchmark standard is the character of God himself. Uh, if you think about the character of God's love and the properties of God's love and uh, what that benchmark is, well, it's a very high benchmark and it's, it's the benchmark that's expected of us. Love does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. You know, the more you go into this, the harder it gets um, because patience, kindness, that sort of makes sense and I think we all feel that we can do patience and kindness most of the time, some of the time. Um, What about not dishonouring others, not being self-seeking, not easily angered? Uh, It keeps no record of wrongs. I'm hindered in my preaching this morning uh, by the presence of my family at the front of the church because I'm uh, hindered or perhaps aided because... Um, I could tell you about how I've mastered this, uh, but I only have to look at their faces to realise how far short I fall. Um, Do we not dishonour others, put them down? Are we not habitually self-seeking? Are we not quickly given to anger? What about keeping a record of wrongs? Who of us loves our family, our, our husband, our wife, our mother, our father, our sibling, our best friend, who of us loves those around us without keeping a record of wrongs? How does pretty much every letter to an advice column begin? You know, setting up the problem, and then there's a, a record of wrongs. I mean, it's kind of sensible in some respects. It's very human. Um, but Paul is saying the love that, that is, we are called to evidence to experience is the love of God himself and it's a love, it's it's agape as we know the word in Greek that is not held back by questions of personal preference or comfort or relationship it's infinite, it's without limit 
And so when somebody lets us down and disappoints us, it's reasonable to respond to those things and it's reasonable to be discerning, but it's not reasonable to give up on love. And in practical terms, one way that we know that we're giving up on love or reaching a limit where there should be no limit is when we're not considering the dignity of the others, when we're self-seeking, when we're given to anger, and when we keep a record of wrong. What's the principle here? Well, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. We know about carrying the cross, laying down your life. You sort of think it might happen on some distant mission field, right? That when they come knocking at your door with uh, submachine guns and they say, are you a Christian? By the grace of God, you say, I am, and you, you go out a martyr. Well, that would be that would be tough, but it would be sort of it's a, it's a thought which is so remote that it's kind of attractive to put it out there. But when Jesus says laying down our life for our friends, he's not necessarily speaking about crucifixion or martyrdom at all. He's talking about day-to-day living. When Jesus uh, taught in the Sermon on the Mount about turning the other cheek, when somebody wrongs you, don't wrong them back. Or as we read this morning in Romans that um, we don't return, um, uh, we don't return evil for evil. We don't respond to to being wronged by by wronging back. Uh, this is the the distinctive principle of Christian behaviour, and it's a very challenging standard. But if we, by the grace of God, focus on getting this right, it sends a very powerful message to the world. What could be more powerful uh, in your workplace or in your family when somebody says, you know? Truth be told, I've treated him awfully. Uh, I've been very bad to her, and yet she's always there for me. She's always loving. What more powerful message can there be than turning the other cheek? Um, It might come to us one day to experience martyrdom. I I certainly pray it doesn't come to any of us. Um, But that's kind of a remote concept of laying down one's life. I think closer to our lived experience, laying down one's life for one's friends is something that happens day by day, hour by hour, and it starts at home. Verse 6, love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Well, what's going on with this love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth? Um, It seems a little bit cryptic, right? Let me give some context. Uh, We're told that if anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in darkness, anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing to make them stumble. But if anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around the darkness, they do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. When we're told love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth, the principle at work here is that love is about living in the light. Love is about... Uh, being in the, in the presence of God where we don't take cheap joy in the misfortune of somebody else. Um, Schadenfreude is a kind of attractive concept, particularly if you're driving on the highway, um, but it has no place in our Christian life. Um, if, for example, uh, Fremantle were to defeat Hawthorne next week, um, it would be wrong for a Geelong supporter to take false joy in that within limits. Um, No, more seriously, uh, aren't you impressed when you hear somebody who's a player or a coach of a losing team be gracious to the team that's defeated them? Doesn't that speak to an important principle in life? And when we're 
told that love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. Um, there's something of that there that we... People wrong us. Bad things happen, but that gives us no joy. When they experience some blessing, um, then um, that's what makes us happy. Uh, we're living in the light, and living in the light requires that we uh, don't succumb to our base human nature of being drawn to revenge and delighting in the misfortune of others, but seek their blessing. Verse 7 says that love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is an inconvenient verse because it has that difficult word in it, always. Always seems so unreasonable. There should be some limitation on always. But always always is non-negotiable. I mean, there's, there's no opt-out clause here. Always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In Proverbs 19, we're told that what a person desires is unfailing love. And many times through the Psalms, uh, we hear uh, the phrase, unfailing love. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. This, of course, is David's famous confessional, Psalm 51. And you know the context of that Psalm is asking for God's forgiveness, confident in God's grace. Um, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. Uh, when you look up in the, in the NIV uh, translation, unfailing love occurs 40 times, mostly in the Psalms, but also in, in, in other uh, Old Testament passages. And unfailing love is the nature of God's love, and it's to be the nature of our love. That's why our love is to always persevere. Our love is to always uh, trust. Our love is to always hope. It's always... Uh, to protect. It seems like an unreasonable thing to have this word always there, but when we think about the nature of God's love, then the obligation on us is very clear. Okay, love never fails. Um, Paul is not meaning by that what he meant in the last verse. He's moving context now in the final part of, of, of this chapter. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Chapter 12, Paul talks about the gifts of the, of, the, of, of the Spirit in the body of Christ. And it's very important. He says these gifts are very important. Chapter 14, he goes on to say, desire the greater gifts. It's better to desire the gift of prophecy, by which he meant essentially preaching and teaching. Um, it's better to uh, seek that because it can be a blessing to others. But even these greater gifts... They reach the use-by date, they finish. Uh, where there are gifted preachers, one day that comes to an end. Uh, where people speak in tongues or where they have other gifts, that passes away. Where somebody is uh, the repository of all theological wisdom, that will pass away. Well, how does that make sense? Um, it makes sense because of our situation here in this world. We know in part and we prophesy in part but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the childish ways behind me. What does it mean in part and to be a child? Paul's speaking about, remember in the same letter, he talks about eternal life, he talks about the transformation. He talks earlier in this letter about the fact that no one, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has stored up for those who love him. We don't understand more than the very basic things about heaven. We know that heaven is a place where we will be with God and with each other in perfect love for eternity. 
but we will have an understanding of God and of, of, of our relationship with him, if you like, of theology that puts everything that we currently know into context uh, you know, by comparing adult knowledge with the knowledge of a child. I don't know if you've ever sat in a playground and listened to two young children discuss cosmology. Well, they wouldn't call it cosmology, but maybe they're discussing you know, why the sky is blue or what the sun or the moon do, where the stars come from. Maybe they've got a bit of knowledge and they've got some insight and they're trying to piece it together. But clearly you wouldn't go to a child for a lesson on cosmology. You may go for a, to a child for a lesson on morality, but not on cosmology. Um, because once you, if you studied astrophysics and learnt all about uh, the field, you'd realise it's uh, immensely complex and, and way beyond any childish understanding. I can't tell you what knowledge will be like in heaven, except to say that compared with the knowledge we have today, bring up the world's greatest theologians and, and ask them about theology and although what they say will be very true and will continue to be true throughout eternity, by comparison with what those same saints will know when they're in the presence of God, what we currently know would seem just, a, just a, a tiny fraction. We see now only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. A reflection as in a mirror. Well, bear in mind uh, that in, in the times of um, the early church, in Paul's time, uh, we didn't have mirrors made with glass and silver applied uh, to the back of the mirror. Uh, you had mirrors made with polished metal um, or um, uh, maybe some, something with glass but without, without the sort of uh, perfectly reflective surface behind it we're accustomed to. So when you looked in the mirror, you had a basic sense of whether your hair was straight or some other things, but you know it was basically a fairly dim reflection. Um, if you're um, in the middle of life, some of us are, and you go to the mirror and take off your glasses, depending on how long-sighted, short-sighted you are, what you may experience is something like those early mirrors. You know, you can basically work out which way you're facing. Well, because you're looking at yourself, so you know. Um, but um, maybe not see much more than that. Uh, and, and that was what it was like when... So Paul says we see, as it used to say in the, in the older translations, through a glass dimly. We see a very a vague impression of reality. We don't see reality clearly then we shall see face to face. When we come into heaven, into God's presence, uh, we will see face to face. We will have full clarity. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So what's Paul saying here? Our current level of religious knowledge is very limited. And so if we're puffed up with pride about our, our knowledge of theology and doctrine, then we're very mistaken. Even if we work hard in the church to teach and to preach or to work in Sunday school. These are all very good things, but our religion doesn't depend upon that. These things will pass away. Um, the gifts that we're given are gifts that are given. They will be taken away. When we're, this life is over, whatever gifts we've had don't carry on to eternity. That's a different story. Uh, we can't be proud of our gifts. The one thing that carries on is love. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. What remains of our religion, of our Christianity, beyond this life? Well, everything drops away except for our faith and our hope, which is fulfilled, and love. Now, faith and hope are pretty important things. Uh, we can't have true religion without faith and hope. But the greatest of these is love. And this really puts things in context. Our Christianity is, is so very lacking perhaps even empty and without any meaning if we're lacking in love. 
just finally, um, since God so loved us, we ought so to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is what true religion is. We can't see God, but we do know by faith something of his love for us. And in knowing something of his love for us, his spirit works in our hearts and enables us to love one another in similar kind. And when we do that, we bear witness in the world of the presence of God in in a most powerful way. Uh, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Father, we give you thanks for the great and wondrous truth of your love for us, which knows no limits, which is unfailing. Father, we do once again... um, Ask your forgiveness for our lack of love, lack of faithfulness in love, for the lukewarmness of our love both towards you and towards one another. And Father, we pray that you would uh, be gracious to us today and these coming days and the weeks to come as we relate to each other in family and workplace and in broader society. We pray that people may see your love in us and that this will glorify you. We pray that we might find joy and peace and happiness in life Uh, through experiencing your love expressed through us in our relationships with each other. Father, we give you thanks that you have made this possible through Jesus' work, and we give you thanks for the great hope that we are children of God and that we are in your family loved by you as you love Jesus himself. And Father, help us be buoyed by this tremendous treasure beyond all measure and help us to put everything else into perspective and to walk away from our selfishness and to experience your love flowing through us to others. We pray in Jesus' name.